Good evening and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio Live. If you're listening back as a podcast, thank you, welcome and enjoy. It's Monday the 10th of January and you're listening to The Twilight Show with Kate Jones. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from Wales. This is The Twilight Show with Kate Jones. Hello and welcome to my new show and a different day, a different time, with different topics and with different guests. We are go, we are live. Join in, get involved. Live from Wales, this is The Twilight Show with Kate Jones on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Oh my goodness. So after a little technical glitch, I think we're all good and that you can hear me. Can somebody confirm in the Podbean chat that you can hear me loud and clearly? Fantastic. Okay then. So as I've already said, this is my comeback show. And it started with a little bit of a glitch, but never mind. Um, And I say it's my comeback show because I was a host for Teachers Talk Radio last year. I was a host of the Friday Breakfast Show. But I had a little break from October onwards. And now I'm back on a Monday, a different time. And the reason that I took a break is because back in October, I was in Abu Dhabi. And that's where I was teaching, that's where I was living. But as you may have heard from the intro, I'm now in Wales, beautiful Wales. So I wanted to make the most of my time in Abu Dhabi before leaving. And that's why I took a little bit of a break. But if you did um, listen back to my shows, or if even actually, if you didn't, I was very lucky. I had some incredible guests and all of them are available to listen back to um, via a podcast. So if you subscribe to Teachers Talk Radio as a podcast, then they are all there. My interviews with Doug Lamarve, Professor John Hattie, Dame Alison Peacock. Oh, how many more names can I just drop? Dylan William. They were absolutely brilliant. They were brilliant for me, but hopefully brilliant for the listeners too. And today, I've also got another brilliant guest and I might be biased because he's my friend and he's my co-author, but he's absolutely fantastic. So Robin McPherson will be joining me soon. But what I wanted to say before I get into my chat with Robin was, as I mentioned, I've just moved back to the UK after teaching internationally for over five years. And if you've taught... Oh, sorry, there is a background noise here. That is, there we go. If you've taught internationally previously and you've moved back to the UK, then if you've got any tips for me about settling back in and about adjusting, 
then I would really appreciate that. Actually, I could ask Robin about that because I do know Robin taught in the Middle East and then went back to the UK. And Tom Rogers, our director at Teachers Talk Radio, taught in Spain and Slovenia, and he's now back in the UK. So anyone who's taught anywhere else in the world, and then you've moved back to the UK, what are your tips and bits of advice? Obviously, there's lots of things that I'm thoroughly enjoying and loving which is being with my family but then I'm struggling with the cold weather (laughs) and actually there's just a lot of shocks for me and a lot of changes and differences especially with the approaches to COVID Um, it's very different to how it was Um, I think it's quite fair to say that it was stricter in the UAE which you could consider a good or a bad thing but there's just lots of different ways um that I'm adapting to that. So I'd love to hear from you about international teaching. And then something else that I wanted to talk about, which again, other people might have experience of. I originally made the decision to return home about a year ago, because when you teach internationally, you have to give your intentions every year. And this could be in November in the first term, or January when you come back after the winter break. Now, this isn't something that we do in the UK. You don't say whether you intend to stay or leave. It's just assumed that you are staying at your school unless you obviously have a conversation with your head teacher and say that you're looking to move or to leave for whatever reason. So international, you do have to think ahead. But the international scene is a lot more transient as well. So people do move a lot more, whether that's they move schools or they move countries or they return home. So I made the decision in the January and I was very lucky that I was involved in the recruitment process for my replacement. And I say I was very lucky because obviously it was really important to me that the candidate was excellent. This is someone that I'm going to be giving all my classes to and they'll be taking over the department that I've been leading. So I was involved in the shortlisting and the interview process, which I really enjoyed. And I think it was great professional development for me was I know some schools, they don't always allow the middle leaders to get involved. Anyway, we found a wonderful candidate. However, he couldn't start until January. So I was originally meant to leave in July, but then I agreed to stay on an extra term. Now, anyone else who's ever left um, in December, I'd again be interested to hear your opinions because I wouldn't recommend it. Now, I did really enjoy that extra bit of time with my classes and it was great in many ways, but it's actually quite messy to leave at that point in the year. And usually it often can't be helped for whatever reason for somebody leaving in December. But usually when somebody leaves at the end of the academic year in July, you can just wrap things up. It's the end of the school year. And then September is a fresh start for everyone. New class lists, um, new classes to meet, new content, starting point. It's just a lot easier starting in September was it was really strange going to teach in September, meeting my year seven classes. And I didn't tell them straight away. I was told, don't say anything just yet. But I was working hard to help them feel settled in. And I had a year seven tutor group and I was trying to support them. 
And then I had to tell them that I'd be leaving soon. So that was quite difficult. But then also, when you think about the work and how the work that you do in the first term has a massive impact on the second term. And uh, the candidate who's replaced me, he is brilliant. But this term, um, he will have to do parents' evenings and reports and things like that after not knowing his classes for that long. So I imagine as difficult it was for me to finish off in December, I imagine it's quite hard for him starting in January. So yes, I do want to hear from you if you um, have returned to the UK, what's your advice for me about how I can settle back in um, into British life and culture? Any tips will be greatly welcomed. If you have experience of leaving a school in December or starting a school in January, what was your experience like? Now we're going to head to the news and the adverts, but after that, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about my guest, Robin McPherson. I'm going to tell you how Robin and I became friends and how we became co-authors. And then we will hear from the man himself um, about his really interesting career. And of course, we'll be talking about our new book, The Teacher Life. So Dorian, over to the news. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Colin's Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide emotional and practical bereavement support. Expert teams also provide online resources, specialist publications and training for professionals. Find out more about Winston's Wish and pledge your support at www.winstonswish.org. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. According to a report in the Times Educational Supplement, the current state of SEND provision in England is resulting in magnet and honeypot schools. Magnet schools is a term which has increasingly been given to settings which have a higher percentage of students with SEND on roll than is reflected in the local community. Many of these schools are concerned that their higher than average proportion of students with SEND is not significantly recognised by Ofsted or the government. Pep Delazio, head teacher of Wales High School in Sheffield, says his school is a magnet school and added, it's like having a five-star review on TripAdvisor. This year's open evening was frightening. We had parents coming from all over the nearby authorities we serve because of our reputation. 
and that is worrying because while we want to do our best for these students, how long can we maintain it? According to the most recent government data, between 2015 and 2021, the number of SEND students in England rose from 991,981 to 1,083,003. In October, Nadim Sahawi said that he recognised the urgency around providing the provision of SEND. The Education Secretary, Nadeem Sahawi, has backed the reduction of the COVID isolation period from seven to five days, saying it would be more helpful. Speaking to the Sunday Times, he said, the UK Health Security Agency have said they want to review it. So we will stick to seven days, but if they review it and say they will bring it down to five days, then that is even better for me. It's even more helpful. His comments come after parents were urged to book jabs for their children as official COVID deaths passed 150,000 in the UK. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Last week I looked at some free apps for the New Year's resolution of getting fit and healthy. This week I tried a few things out and I'm ready to present my findings. First up, the free version of MyFitnessPal. There's an old age saying that 90% of fitness is in the kitchen. If you want to get in shape, you have to have the right building blocks to do so. With this in mind, I set out to log everything I ate and for good measure, I even broke out the scales to get portion sizes correct. My first discovery is that 45 grams of granola, the recommended portion size, is nothing like the portion I've been having. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that it wouldn't even fill a hamster. Realising I was eating three or four times the portion I was supposed to has made me think about my other choices, so I ate the recommended 45 grams and logged the milk. I was surprised how easy it was to find foods in the search feature, even supermarket brands. The app gave me a calorie target based on my weight, height and goal I'd chosen. As I had a coffee, I decided to map out my day and stick to it to stop myself cheating. After a week of tracking, I reviewed what I was eating. I could see where most fat and calories were coming from, allowing me to consider, I'm not promising anything, where I could make changes. The question you want me to answer is, did I lose weight? The answer is yes, but I think my next experiment had the most impact on that. Over the break, I managed to fall asleep watching TV and woke up to an infomercial on a DVD box set to get fit in 60 days. 60 days sounds quite quick, but thinking about it, it's practically two months. However, I did a bit of research and found a programme that didn't need any weights or equipment, just floor space. I picked up the Insanity Workout series for around £35 on Amazon. My thinking being, you'd pay that for a month in a gym and I get to keep this forever. Now, I will confess, I do consider myself quite fit already. However, nothing could have prepared me for this. With Sean T, the amazing energetic coach screaming dig deeper and about 20 fitness professionals bouncing around what looked like a high school gym i've spent 45 minutes a day for the past six days jumping stretching squatting and definitely sweating 
Being honest, I was ready to tap out after the warm-up on day one. I'm not going to lie, I used muscles I don't think I've ever used. By day three, even sitting still and lying in bed at night hurt. After pushing through to day on day seven, a rest day, the pain has subsided and I feel great. I just have one word of warning. If you're looking to do something like this, the long walk from the car park with load books may be impossible in the first week. Read the disclaimer, this is not to be taken lightly. In conclusion, I can't see myself keeping up my fitness pal once the novelty wears off, but it has made me look at my diet. A DVD fitness program for me is great finding 45 minutes is not always easy and if you want to try before you buy if you're a member of netflix or prime already there's programs on there which are already in your subscription next week we're back to tech for teaching i'm steve woods and this was two minute tech two minute tech with steve woods your tech briefing on teachers talk radio live from wales This is The Twilight Show with Kate Jones on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, and Robin, you're in the studio. Hi, how are you? (laughs) Hello, good evening. Great to hear from you, Kate. How are you? Oh, you had no technical issues, just me. (laughs) So you you did absolutely fine. No, I'm really good. And um, Robin, I always start off with a fun fact about my guests. Here we go. And I know, yeah, I had quite a few fun facts about you. Uh, one of them was about, well, it, this isn't my fun fact, but do you remember um, us in Glasgow singing the Proclaimers? Oh, perhaps uh, it, it was me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can neither confirm nor deny that that took place. <laughs> well, no, my fun fact about you is something that I think is really cool and it sort of links in with all the work that you do, is that you've hosted an event at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. That, I know that's a, a good fact, isn't it? That is, I'm pleased you've gone with that fact of the many that you could have chosen. That's all right. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that was good. I met your mum at that festival as well, at that event that you hosted. <laughs> she was there. I can't, I can't believe I let my mum come to that, but never mind. Hi, mum. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Robin's mum. So, right, before, I feel like I could give this introduction about you, but... Um, Before I get to an introduction um, about you and your career, quite a few people have asked me about our friendship and how it seems a little bit random that we were writing a book from Aberdeen and Abu Dhabi, (laughs) which is, I suppose, (laughs) fair enough. But I think this is right, Robin. We we just like met through Twitter, didn't we? Um, Wasn't I getting trolled because I read your book on the beach your book with Carl Hendrick your first book and um, somebody called me sad for reading a teaching book on the beach and you came to my defense and I think that's how we became friends is that how you remember it I, I think so although I think the first time we had a chat I think we had connected just before that and correct me if I'm wrong was it not over a shared love of Kinokuniya Oh, oh, pa- oh, yeah, actually, because I yeah. posted that. Yeah, for anyone who doesn't know that, so that's the the bookstores, isn't it? In um... It's an amazing bookstore. It's a Japanese chain, and there's a huge branch of it in um, Dubai Mall. And uh, it was my one of my favourite places to go to. Um, it's like, <clears throat> if you've been to America, like Barnes & Noble, it's that kind of amazing type bookshop. 
So for whatever reason, we, I think we had a very geeky conversation about our love of bookshops and history books and this kind of stuff. And, and then it was not long after that that the book I did with Carl came out. And yeah, Poolgates, my goodness. Um, yeah. Somebody really took exception to you reading a book. I know, on a beach. How dare you? But I, I was at the beach every weekend, so that was just my life. But um, and then you, <laughs> you wrote the foreword to Love to Teach, my first yeah. book. You were my like, choice, and I was so happy about that. I'm really grateful. Um, and then yeah, we've met in Glasgow, Edinburgh, Dubai. You spoke at Research Ed Dubai as well, didn't you? Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah, we just sort of talked about it for a while, and then. Um, we just did it, didn't we? A long distance collaboration. <laughs> yeah, and and I'm not sure, you know, how feasible that would have been. I don't know, even a, even a couple of years ago, because we'd been intending to write something, and then I think we put it off, partly because lots of things were going on. You know, COVID was happening. You had other projects that you had to run with. Um, I was changing jobs. I was moving house, so it wasn't quite the right time. And and that worked, I think, very much in our favour because it gave us so much new material to talk about because things had changed so extensively for everyone in the teaching profession. Um, so it seemed like a good time. So when we started having a chat again about 12 months ago, but you know, what, let's do this. Let's, let's actually commit to doing it in the summer. Um, I find it really refreshing because it was quite a nice way of refocusing on the things that I am really passionate about in education, whereas so much of what we were doing was all about the type stuff because of trying to keep schools safe places uh, with COVID. So it was, it was such a nice experience to do it. And I remember when I did the book with Carl, we used to have like a, it was the same thing. We, we wrote it in July as, as you and I did with this book, but Carl and I would have like a daily meeting at 11 o'clock. We had this office space we were using and a, a big whiteboard and we'd write all our ideas on it. Who's going to do what? We went away, we did it and we met again the next day. So that was really good because it was collaborative and it was just an enjoyable experience. And then when you and I decided to do it, it all had to be online. And, you know, it was just as easy. You know, staying in touch is so simple and um, it didn't feel weird doing it because we were so used to collaborating online by then. Um, so, yeah, it, it was just a nice, straightforward thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's so interesting because when we originally had the contract with John Cat, and then, as you said, we sort of, didn't manage to get going for a while but things changed so much that the cpd with with covid and everything and so you touched upon your book with carl hendrick what does this look like in the classroom so you were working together at wellington college at this point and you've got so many amazing people in this book you had dylan william lucy Cree, and douglas up loads of amazing people were you able to get all of those people because of your role in the festival at Wellington. You yeah. Have this, like, phone book with all these <laughs> big names. <laughs> I think that's probably right. It's hard to imagine that book coming out the way it did without Edfest because basically the, the brief with Edfest uh, when Carl and I took over the content management was that we had to book 300 plus speakers for a two day event happening every summer. We had a year to prepare for it and it was just, it was a brilliant job because you just, you know, you read through education news and you were looking at what was happening in social media and you were trying to identify, you know, a good speaker to have. And it wasn't um, restricted to people working in education. It could be people who had interesting views about it or just something to, to contribute to the festival. And it, and it was a festival. So through that, we just got to know so many people that when Carl and I first were serious about writing a book, the original plan was that he and I would write it very much as you and I did last summer. 
And um, instead, we just thought, well, actually, we have got access to all these incredible people, and maybe it would be better if we just ask them, what does the, your understanding of the research base say about this particular issue or that particular issue? And I suppose the other important part of it was that because we were working in a teaching school alliance, we also worked with about 18 partner schools. So we could run focus groups from lots of different schools to get the questions. And I think, I mean, how many questions did we have in the end? It was about uh, 91, I think, altogether. We had nine chapters of 10 questions and then one final chapter with you know the finale question of about independent learning. So to get those questions together, when you, again, we could have come up with them, but it was much more interesting to go to groups of teachers and, and have sessions with them and say, look, what would you really like to know about classroom behavior or motivation, this kind of thing. So um, aggregating those questions and slightly refining them was, was the job we then had. So I sometimes talk about it as a book that was organized as opposed to maybe being written Although we obviously did write a, you know, a good chunk of it, but most of it's to do with the, the interviews that we ran. And it was just an interesting thing. Once we got the first two or three on our wish list, everyone else kind of fell into place because it was then easy to say, would you like to be in it? These are the people we're interviewing and everyone else said, oh, yeah, that would be great. So I don't think that would have happened without Edfest, if I'm being perfectly honest. Well, I have a favourite chapter. Do you have a favourite chapter in that book? I don't know if you can say. <laughs> um, do I have a favourite? Um, no, I don't. I think they're all different chapters and the contributors are so strong. I think the the ones around um, assessments probably been the most popular one, I would say, yeah. the most questions we get asked about. So um, I, that'd be my guess. Is that your favourite chapter? Yep, so that's Dylan William and Daisy Christazulu. And it's just a book that I just keep going back to. And even in my books, um, like Dylan William's Four Quarters Marking, that's where he first shared yeah, that in well. your book. So it's so good. It's just I mean, the, the rest of the book is brilliant. But that chapter in itself, you must have been like when this was all coming in, when you're getting this stuff from Dylan William, and you just must have been thought, this is, this is amazing. <laughs> It was great because we, we did do a Skype chat, as it was back then, uh, with Dylan because he was in the States. And when he talked about this idea of four quarters marking, I remember sort of Carl and I looking at each other thinking, that is absolute gold dust. We are having that. So we just had to turn it into a diagram. It was brilliant. And I mean, it's been shared so often. And, and quite often, if you were to type the name of the book into Google and look for images, it's the, the diagram of the four quarters marking that tends to come up straight away. I mean, it's, it is terrific. And I think that's been the biggest time saver for the teachers who have read the book is if they follow that model, it cuts down the amount of marking quite significantly, as well as improving the quality of feedback that you give. It's it's one of those rare times when you get something that is a you know a huge time saver and it improves what you do. Yeah. And did your collaboration with Carl come about your really good friends as well, I suppose, as colleagues? Is that how you just thought let's let's do this book together? Yeah, very much so. So uh, in the school that we worked in. Carl was in the English department and I was uh, in history. And so the English department was just a bit further away. So Carl used to kind of walk past um, the front of the history department. And we had a lobby with you know, kind of a plate glass window and a, a table there. So the teachers would, would frequently sit around that and just have a chat. Um, and Carl would kind of shuffle past as he does and then kind of come on in for a bit of a chat. And, you know, it, we'd we'd frequently be talking about what we'd be doing that day and things that we liked, things that we didn't like to do with, with pedagogy and, you know, new initiatives and so on. And I think it just evolved out of that. It was a lot of conversations where 
we were sort of putting the school to rights and the world to rights and everything else that we just thought, you know, let's turn it into a book. Um, and, you know, at that time, Carl was making real headway with his blog and I hadn't started blogging. So we just thought, well, there is an audience out there. If, if we write something and nobody pays attention, at least we've, we've had the experience of writing a book. And then when we had the idea to go to a number of different um, interviewees, that took it to another stage. And, and even then, we, we were consciously aware that if you write a book about education research, it could well sink like a stone. But uh, we were amazed just to see the reaction to it. And it, it was pretty popular straight away, which was lovely. Yeah, it's been brilliant. Uh, it's still it's still a fantastic book. So um, in terms of your career, so we've just mentioned about you being at Wellington College writing this book, but before that, you were in Dubai as well as head of history. But then I take it before that, you taught. So you started in the UK, went abroad, came back to Wellington. Is that right? That's right. Um, my first school was in Edinburgh and I, I loved it. It was a terrific experience. Uh, you know, really good setup. They looked after me so well, but I did have that slight nagging feeling. And I think a lot of people may identify with this. You know, I'm from Edinburgh and I was very happily settled. I was engaged to be married. And I just think I, I could just be at this school forever. And I did think that I, at some point I will look back on this and regret not seeing what else is out there. And I thought if I'm, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to make a change, then you know, it's, it's a little bit never, never. And at the time, my, my wife, Hossa, she um, was living in Belgium and she had the same feeling about Brussels that she, she just wanted a change of scene and it was a little bit never, never because I would happily have gone to live in Brussels and she would have happily lived in Edinburgh, but we both felt we wanted a, a change of scene. So we just had a, a deal that I would look for jobs that were out there on the TES. And if I liked to look at a job, I would show it to Hossa and if she liked the location then we would apply for it and if she didn't then you know I wouldn't um, and that's kind of how we ended up in Dubai. It was either going to be Dubai or Washington DC or Singapore and and Muscat I think was the other one. They were the applications I had out and the Dubai one came off so I pulled out of interviews for the others and we just went for it and because we got married uh, we got married left the next day went on honeymoon and came back from honeymoon straight to Dubai and into kind of like new life, new job. So it actually, it was lovely because it felt like we were on honeymoon for about six months. It was really terrific. Aww. And we just kept on sort of traveling around the region as well. So it was a good time in life, I thoroughly. And that's, I think if you're going to go abroad, it's such a big move. You've just got to kind of jump in with both feet. It's, um, you know, it, it, it's, it takes a lot of bravery. It takes a lot of courage. But I definitely don't regret it. I, you know, as I said, I was so well looked after in the school I was in in Edinburgh, but I'm pleased that I made the move. Um, I, I learned so much from doing it. Well, we wrote about it, didn't we, in, in our book and that chapter. Um, mm -hmm. it, the thing we struggled with, didn't we, was trying to condense it, cut it down, because we just had so much content, because there was so much we wanted to cover, because we realised you and I, we both taught in the Middle East and you've mentioned there this Singapore, this Thailand and we did try and get that coverage but we also realised this, there's just so much that we can't include because actually even in Dubai, the, the difference in schools in Dubai in terms of the packages and the you know and wage and things like that that varies massively so I'm really glad we wrote about it but it, it's quite it was quite tough wasn't it to to try and capture international teaching it, in a chapter. <laughs> very absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a book in its own right, definitely. And I think that, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that chapter was one of the first to, you know, kind of come together and then the last one to be finished off because the, the bit we had trouble with was 
the range of interviews that we had. And it went from, I don't know, let's, let's just see if we can represent all continents. And then we realized that actually there's, there's such a big market in Southeast Asia. You know, what's the difference between Thailand and Vietnam? And, uh, and we sort of realized that, as you say, you could advise someone what it's like to work in Dubai, but there's such a range of schools there that that wouldn't necessarily be a representative experience. So we just had to give a flavor of it. And we had such great interviews coming in from people that we knew working or who had worked abroad or were still working abroad that we just decided in the end to go with a thematic approach to it. And I, looking back and, and rereading the chapter, I think that was a really good call because, as I say, that could be a book in its own right or you know a website or a, a, a kind of a global traveler's guide to teaching. You know, there's probably a market for that as well. But it's it's I think I well I certainly hope that people who read it, if they're thinking about going abroad, it will give them enough kind of food for thought that it lets them make an informed decision. Because I know when back in 2008, when I was looking at moving abroad, I just couldn't find anything decent that gave me any idea of what I was in for. You know, uh, there weren't you know sort of testimonials or enough information. Even the school I was going to didn't have a website at the time, so I couldn't even see that. I just had, it was a total step into the dark. So I hope people will now be able to make a much more informed decision if they are going to go abroad. Yeah, and I've been talking to some people about the book, trying to say how much is in it. And even if they have no interest in going abroad, it's just interesting. Or perhaps if they might be involved in recruitment, and there's a few myths around international teaching about, well, actually, what if someone applies and they've been teaching abroad for five years? You know, will they be out the loop? Will they be up to date? And so I do think, even if you don't have an interest in international teaching yourself, it's still good to have that awareness. I mean, you're a head teacher, aren't Definitely. you? Obviously. So, and uh, sorry. So, are you your head of college, not rector? <laughs> I always get this. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> That's right. So back in the day, my title would have been headmaster, but it was changed um, by not my predecessor by one, but by two um, to to be more gender neutral, I think. So um, that's a, a positive thing, obviously. But yeah, essentially, head, head teacher um, is what I am. And I, I know, you know, I think we both had this from so many people that when we went abroad, we were warned that, you know, well, you won't get a job back in the UK in a few as, as I did, you know, trained as an IB teacher and said, well, that's definitely game over because you'll be out of the loop with British curriculum and nobody cares about the IB. But when I was away, there's so many more schools signed up for the IB. Um, and I was away for three years. And honestly, you don't lose that much really in, in the space of three years. And uh, also just now it's so much easier because of, you know, things like well, this, these podcasts, uh, you know, Twitter, LinkedIn, it's so much uh, easier to keep in touch with what's happening in you know your your country of destination so that if you want to go back it's far more seamless than it used to be and even then i don't think it was that big a deal when i went abroad and that's going back more than a decade now yeah well yeah as we've said twitter and podcasts and so on i definitely don't feel um out of the loop and i'll just i've got um our overview of the book here and i think if I was to describe it to somebody, I would describe it as quite epic. <laughs> and that, that might be big headed, but I, I just think uh, it's epic because how much we, we've put into this book. We've got the two sections, haven't we? Professional learning and then career progression. And Andy Buck, who we both love, um, and he read it and reviewed it, and he said it was a book of its time. And I definitely felt that we were writing about things that I hadn't read in other books with professional learning with career progression um 
Is that how you feel about this book? They just offer something a bit different, doesn't it? Yeah, this was it. So um, when we started talking about this, we just thought, let's keep it short and punchy and, and it'll be a bit of a, a summary of each side. But I think the aim was to make it more like a pamphlet than a book. And then when we actually started planning it, we had to add, add and add. And then by the time we actually wrote it and, and did a lot of more reading and research, there were just more and more things going in. And we actually had to kind of be quite firm and, and cut it off. So it ended up being probably more than double the length that we originally intended. But it wasn't just that things had changed so much due to COVID, but also a lot of really big things were happening just totally coincidentally. So like the new MPQ framework coming in, yeah. um, you know, that that's a huge thing. And it was just coming on right at the time that we were writing. So it all came together really nice. I, I, I think it was more accident than design, I have to admit, but the, the timing of it couldn't have been better. So last summer was just a great time to be writing about all of these changes. And I did feel that if we didn't do it then, if we postponed it for another year, other people would do it and there just wouldn't be a need for that book. Um, and I suppose it may be in five years time, people will read it and it will seem out of date, but you could probably do the same concept again, just refreshed. Yeah, well, something that I found challenging at times, but really interesting was how we covered the differences with Wales, England, Scotland, Northern Ireland and international. <laughs> we noticed all these different acronyms, didn't we, Mom? And they were like, oh my oh. goodness. It got but, so complicated, didn't it? <laughs> it's a it lot did. of learning. <laughs> but even um, with the early careers framework, um, and that was really interesting as well, the early careers framework and how that's two years in England and how it hasn't changed in Wales with NQT mentors and the beginning teacher in Northern Ireland. And I do get this frustration from some edu books that are written for teachers in the UK, but uh I, I don't know how to phrase it, but perhaps just focus on English government policy with Ofsted and with the changes that England make. And then actually, when you think about, and we've talked about this before, when even international, when they say British curriculum, we say, well, what's that? What is a British yeah. curriculum? And, you, you know, it was helpful that I obviously have taught in Wales and I've got all these connections you've taught in England, but and that you're in Scotland now as well. So do you think that was a bit of an, not an eye opener because I'm sure, I know that you're very up to date, but you obviously got when we were doing the chapters, especially it was the early careers teacher. When you got to see the differences, because you're a head teacher, a head of college in Scotland, and then seeing how it compares with England and Wales and Northern Ireland, I mean, I found it really interesting. I thought it was fascinating, and I think people don't necessarily understand the significance of this, but. The differences in the different UK systems around initial teacher training and then early careers framework and curriculum and assessment. I mean, those are are things that I, I, you know, I might be overstating the case, but they, you know, they might be loosening the bonds of British education or even the British political system because they're going in such different directions. And you know, what you get with the curriculum for excellence in Scotland is so different to the national curriculum in England. And Wales is now doing much more you know, it going in the same direction as Scotland, that you know, young people are getting such a different educational experience out of these systems and what they know and their skills base are really different. And I think education systems very often provide a cohesion to a state that if they're all going in different directions um, for both teachers and pupils, then I don't know what the long-term impact of that is going to be, but it's fascinating looking at it. And 
I, I do think in, in many ways the support given to young teachers now is certainly better than when I was training at the time. But if you are going to change country or change system when you're involved in this, then you, you really need to be aware there's some big differences there. And the, you know, my frustration in Scotland is that, uh, you know, the GTCS, which is the, the General Teaching Council for Scotland, um, has a very high line on, you know, accrediting teachers here that, you know, it's quite difficult to come in from some of the different programs that exist in England and be allowed to teach in Scotland. And I know a lot of people find a lot of frustration around that, and it's still quite a big issue facing us. So um, it's worth knowing these things before you can assume that if you've been teaching in England, you could go to Ireland and it'll just be kind of the same when it really won't. Yeah, well, I live right on the border. So, you know, I could 20 minutes and I'm in a school in England or I could teach in Wales. So this sort of stuff, it is really important. And I, I've seen it... Um, I won't get into it. There was a bit of a Twitter spat about skirts, which I won't get into, but basically, yeah, you weren't involved in that. There's a Twitter spat. I, 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 I watched from afar on that one, yeah. Yeah, I, I won't get into that, but something, I don't know, I think the school that it was, it was about uniform, and the school was in Scotland. And then it just sort of started saying about how there are differences in Scotland. And then there was another sort of thread that just sort of went off on a tangent saying about how, Lots of people comment and they don't understand the Scottish system or this frustration yet yeah, about the UK being very Ofsted focused when actually, you know, uh, I've been very lucky. I've interviewed Professor Daniel Mers, but I've, I've never had an Ofsted experience. So when I see lots of people writing about Ofsted in Wales, the, even the inspection process is completely different. When I yeah. went through an inspection, we had about four weeks notice and it was just, it wasn't, it was stressful, but not, I don't think, to the way that it was described in England. Um, but something else that we sort of found challenging, like you said, our book is is very sort of hot and current. But the early careers framework, the MPQs, I remember you saying to me, we, we don't really know how these are going to pan out, do we? You know, we can write about them and the documents and we can give advice, but we're not in a position yet to sort of reflect on whether they're, it, whether it's better or not. It, that, absolutely. And I suppose that's always going to be the challenge of trying to write something that, you know, is trying to be very current and up to date is that if the, the sands are shifting, then which way is it going to go? Uh, but, you know, we, what we could do and, and made the chapters valid was we could look back on what had gone before, evaluate that and say, this is why a change has been made and this is what the potential benefits could be. And, you know, how long will it take for somebody to be able to write something that actually actually reflects how these things have played out? It's probably going to take two, three, four years. So in the meantime, it's definitely valid to have something to say, these are the changes coming in and this is the impact they're intending to have. And the main point of the book is the stimulus for teachers to think about their own development and their own career choices. So if you read that chapter or that case study on the MPQ framework, you might think, well, maybe that's for me. Maybe I should do that. And so if people read the book and start making those kind of decisions on the back of it, then I think it's, it's definitely something, it's a goal that we, uh, you know, we set out to achieve. Yeah, well, professional learning, we've got two very contrasting chapters. We've got one which is basically low cost, very cheap or free. Um, we said low cost, high impact. And then we had another chapter where actually we were looking at some quite expensive courses. So I remember you doing the research and we were like, wow, it's got some big bucks here, isn't there? So 
it's just, that was just interesting again, wasn't it, to see all of the professional learning opportunities. And we quoted your good friend, Carl Hendrick, because he said it was a golden age of CPD. But then it was so interesting sort of digging into that, wasn't it? And all the That's it. it. It is. And, and it's, I suppose the CPD market has been stretched, hasn't it? Because I would say the vast majority of things that people did five, 10 years ago were really just about one day courses, weren't they? And they would cost what, you know, 50 pounds if they were cheap, 100, 150 normal, they, they could be up to three, four, 500 pounds, depending on what it was. But the idea of doing something that didn't cost anything and just by yourself didn't occur to many people, or at least not so many people. And then also at the other end, doing things like a master's, a PhD, an MBA, uh, you know, those are huge investments and looking at the cost of them. I mean, it's, you know, another end of student loans or a small mortgage in some cases. And just fascinating to see the range of prices for master's degree courses across the UK. Uh, it's, it's massive. And, you know, when I did my master's back in 2007, I think my fees are about £4,000, but you could treble that for a lot of the courses that are available now. It's, it's stunning. Yeah, well, that's interesting because you did your master's, as a, was it straight after your history degree? Because you were at Oxford uh, studying history and then your master's in history, is that right? Yeah, I, I had a gap. So I uh, qualified as a teacher and was working. And about, again, this is, I suppose my first big career choice was that I think I've been teaching for three or four years and just decided that I quite wanted to move into universities and academia. So I went part-time in the school I was working at, again, with their full support, which really was amazing, but did a, a full-time research master's at Edinburgh University in Scottish history, and the aim was to do a PhD. And at the end of doing that, I had a terrific experience, absolutely loved it, and had a place to do the PhD, but I didn't have funding to do it because rather bizarrely, Scottish church history doesn't attract a lot of funding, but um, that's a debate for another day. So <laughs> I, I had to decide, look, what do I do? Do I stay in schools and go for a middle leadership post, or do I carry on down this route of taking three to four years to do a PhD, get a little bit of money for doing some teaching while I do it, but you know, I'm gonna be pretty broke when I do. And the career advice I, I got from doing my research on both sides was that, look, doing what you're doing and uh, it's going to take you three four years to get the phd it'll take you another couple of years after that to get a decent job as a lecturer and then you will probably be on a lower salary than you currently are as a classroom teacher so are you willing to do that and i had to think long and hard about it and because what i was doing was a little bit niche as well you know i, I would only really have been able to work in scotland it's not many other universities around the world would have been interested in it so I just thought, no, I, there's a wider world out there and I really want to see it. So that was what I thought was my new career path of heading into, you know, university lecturing ended up being going abroad, being a head of history, going and learning about the IB and IGCSEs and so on, and going in a totally different direction. And I do think that was a terrific decision because I don't regret anything that's happened after that. But I'd still love to do a PhD, but I think it's going to be something that I'll do after working in schools or you know, the, further down the line, because I couldn't quite see what it was. The intellectual challenge would have been amazing, but I can't quite see what it would have done for me career. Working in schools was definitely the right call. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you've you've written um, history textbooks as well. So I suppose perhaps your master's in history, well, you obviously love history, but do you wish you'd have perhaps done a master's in education or leadership or not? You think you did the right thing at the time? 
At the time, it was definitely the right thing because I had to find out that that wasn't the pathway for me. And what I loved about being a teacher in the first was just, I, I love my subject and I've was reading everything I, I possibly could to make myself a better classroom teacher. Um, but I wasn't yet reading anything about education because there just wasn't that same book market there. Um, and although I, I read The Learning Game by Jonathan Smith, I think, um, which was given to me by my head teacher at the time, but that was the only book that anyone really read. And so it didn't occur to me to do like an education master's. So a couple of years ago, I did my headship qualifications and that was a master's level degree. And um, I enjoyed it. There's no doubt about that. And there, there was a lot of value to it. But what I've learned from the different things I've done that involve writing is that so many different styles and approaches to writing. And I, I really value having a bit of creative freedom to write. So the book that you and I did, it was entirely up to us what we wrote. And it was mm -hmm. an absolute joy to do that. But to write the kind of assessments that I had to do for headship qualifications, it was quite, I felt it was quite straightjacketed. I don't think anyone else had that experience because they hadn't been writing books before, but I went from writing about whatever I wanted, as a blogger especially, you write about whatever you want to write about, and suddenly you have this rubric and this format you have to follow, and you've got to adapt your style to that. So that was a little bit difficult, I would say. Um, and writing history textbooks as well, writing for Cambridge University Press, they absolutely drill you on the style that they want. And again, that was a big kind of learning curve for me about shorter sentences, shorter paragraphs, better signposting, all the rest of it. But actually, it brought a lot more discipline to my writing, and I did quite enjoy the experience in the end. So whatever type of writing you do, if you enjoy it, just have a go at it. It will always evolve you as a writer. You know, I actually got torn to bits when I did my master's at Edinburgh because they were kind of like, who taught you how to write? I was like, uh, Oxford University? And they're like, yeah, okay, we're going to teach you properly how to write. <laughs> Everyone has their own take on it. Um, and what I like writing about you is that we can both do the academic bit and be serious, but we could also write in a, a more light-touch manner, aware that we are writing for teachers, want to have rooms and rooms of dry stuff. You know, it's got to be engaging. It's got to be quite conversational at times. So I, I quite like that format. Yeah, any of the funny bits in our book, you wrote that. <laughs> like you, you, you had, and I've never seen Star Wars, so I, I didn't always get the references, but I thought most people will, so we kept them in. But actually, this book was brilliant <laughs> because, um, as you said, the other book with Carl Hendrick, you interviewed people, and Carl's got on to write with Paul Kirshner, and this really showed like how much of a brilliant writer you are. And I, I did say this to you when we were writing, you know, because how it would work for people listening is we well we sort of gave each other chapters and we said right you write this chapter I write that chapter and then we edited it and that was really helpful because this is first book that I've co-authored so it was good that I was able to say to you I'm really stuck on this or I'm not sure about this and we had lots of great conversations um, and the masters because I haven't done my masters and when I was at an interview I was asked if you do a master's, and this was for Head History Post, they said, will it be in history or education? And I did say, I'd like to do one linked to education. And he sort of said, wrong answer. I want my head history to be a complete history geek and just do a history um, master's. But that was already, I'd already been head of history before. So I was already thinking further ahead. Um, and then the other thing is I have written these books and it has involved a lot of writing and the freedom and I make money rather than 
spending thousands on it. So for me, mm. I know I still would like to do a master's. Actually, it'd be interesting. What will I gain? What will be more beneficial to me? Because writing in itself and the research and the reading, I mean, I take away a huge amount from that. And then when it's published, I share it with a much wider audience than you would if you with your masters so and I'm not saying of course that everyone should publish books instead of a masters and obviously there's so many great things about doing a masters and the academic elements of it but it I'm just not sure from the conversations I've had with people I've had very mixed and we had this with people with PhD people who said yes it was great and others who said cost a lot and I'm I'm not sure if I would do it again. So it is good that we included this because especially when there's big sums of money that often will have to come out of your own pockets. And it is something to really think carefully about, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I'd love to say that doing a subject-specific master's has been really useful in my teaching career, but sadly not. I've, I've never taught the content that I learned on that. And whilst it developed me as a writer, that's helped me in further writing projects. But has it impacted me as a classroom teacher, as a school leader? <sighs> Probably not. Um, I don't think it's made a, a massive difference, whereas doing an education master's, I think, undoubtedly would. So you've got to think about these things. You know, Again, it comes down to what we talked a lot about. What do you want to achieve in your teaching career, your teaching life? You know, do you want to pride yourself on subject specialism and knowledge, uh, or do you want to go down a, a different kind of a route? And I, I do think that as classroom teachers, and especially in, in secondary, you know, like we're historians, we're general practitioners, you have to do a little bit of everything. You're not going to spend your entire career only teaching that particular A-level unit on, you know, the 18th century. You've got to be able to be broader than that and cover different bases. So doing something that's quite narrowly focused in a particular area of subject knowledge, it could have benefit, but it, you're probably going to do that or a PhD just out of sheer personal enjoyment of it you know it, it's something that is particular to you and will motivate you and there's a lot of value to be had from that but don't expect anyone to ask you lots of detailed questions about it when you go for an interview for a promoted post because i've never been asked about it um and that's a, it's a shame but i can see why so yeah, yeah you're weighing up pros and cons and doing the right thing for you when you're making these kind of decisions yeah absolutely and that links in with the second part of our book which is the career progression uh, and I loved writing this I don't know about you but I do have a favorite chapter and um, my favorite chapter was the non-leadership career progression chapter just because everyone well up until perhaps recently in conversations with you career progression has always sort of equated to leadership and now when I look at my career with speaking at events and publishing books and and how fulfilling that is and I don't necessarily have to be in a leadership position to do that so I just think that chapter and Freya Odell's case study Freya is just incredible brilliant classroom teacher gave up a leadership position and she's just flourishing and her case study it, I, we probably shouldn't have favorites but it, it's my favorite <laughs> it's my favorite <laughs> I know I'm so sorry they're all brilliant but it's just so I don't know what I mean that that's a really that's a different chat that's good I mean you're obviously you have taken the leadership route you're your headmaster but you've done other things like we've said you're publishing you're blogging you know organizing an event at the Edinburgh Finch Festival. So you've done lots of things 
outside leadership as well as leadership, haven't you? Yeah, and I was thinking about Freya's case study because it is it's unique and it's so original that what she talked about was was going in the leadership progression route where you know she's taken on a bit of leadership role, thinking of senior leadership, and just suddenly realizing that maybe this is not for me. And I just wonder how many other people out there are in those roles that have had that nagging doubt but ignore it because you know, why would you give up this kind of a post? You know, you're on a pathway, you need to keep going up. And Freya had the incredible bravery and integrity to, to say no. And what she reveals in her case studies, you know, the impact on her personally, moving abroad, back full time in the classroom, actually spending all that time she would have spent on leadership tasks on other things, professional reading and dialogue and engaging with the wider world of education and how happy that made her and how fulfilled it made her and what a great life choice it was. And I think what we try and do with that chapter is to show that if you stayed at the same school for your entire career and never took on a leadership post, no one should ever tell you that you failed to make progression because you should still progress as a teacher. You know, some people may not, but the idea is that education never stands still. It keeps moving forward. There, there are new things to learn. There are new ways of doing things. So you should always be looking to try to professionally develop yourself and develop your teaching craft. So that's what we mean by progression in that chapter. And you don't have to get your leadership fixed from a promoted post within a school. There's so many things that you can do outside. So we mentioned the ones that, that we've done, but it's not an exhaustive list, but this is like being a governor or being a blogger working for a charity, these kind of things that, you know, maybe you can get that sense of fulfillment and satisfaction from that instead of a middle leader. Um, you know, and, and again, those are the sort of life choices that we'd like people to be able to make the right one for them based on a bit of reflection and some alternative suggestions, because the, you, you can sleepwalk your way into middle leadership by just assuming it's what you should do. Um, and likewise, for middle leadership and senior leadership just because it's what you, you're expected to do. You don't have to do that. Read Freya's case study and see a different way of doing it. It's fantastic. It's liberating. Yeah, and I think that's why it's my favourite chapter, because personally it resonates with me about actually when am I when have I been the happiest? And it wasn't for me in my head of history role. It's when I'm working with other teachers, when I'm writing about retrieval practice. And I found what you know brings me a lot of joy and I feel very successful in that without that that title but having said that it's not that we're anti-leadership because we got a great leadership chapter as well the next one is leadership and you wrote in that and Jill Berry and because um, this is interesting as well like the role of the CEO which has emerged and and I asked you a question I don't know if you remember because you're young Robin <laughs> sorry I shouldn't I shouldn't, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh but you're young and you're a head teacher and I was like what's next you know when you become a head teacher quite young like what you know what what because when you usually when you're sort of a middle leader you look into like senior leadership and then and then that, that's sort of what's next and I can't remember what your answer was to that when I asked you <laughs> I said, what yeah and, and this and I, again this comes down to everyone um I'm personally very landed in the school that I always wanted to work in and then you've got to think you know, do you want one headship where you stay for a long time really make your mark and you know that's your career highlight or do you move around do you take on different challenges there's a school of thought that you know heads can stay in post for less time now because the job is more pressurized and 
it's more about compliance and therefore you know maybe 10 years is something of a ceiling and you know joe berry is my professional mentor and you know known her a long time and i can't think really of anyone i would respect more in the world of education she's phenomenal and she did 10 years as a head teacher and felt that that was the right amount of time she didn't want a second headship but she did want to do a phd or a, a, um and then move into consultancy and that's what she's doing now and and she's still hugely influential in the world of education she's moved on to do other things and i think that's one of the considerations for everybody is that the the roles within education are diversified so much now that again probably wasn't the case 10 years ago that you can still work in education and be heavily involved in what is essentially teaching without necessarily working in a school so it's becoming a more complex picture and another reason why we thought it was such an important thing to do in writing this book is that it's just not straightforward making career choices as, as a teacher anymore because there's so much on offer um i always sort of felt that if i got to a point with the job where i felt i was you know i looked to myself and felt that i'm doing a good job here it was maybe time to move on to the next challenge because i never wanted to get complacent and i never wanted to get stale and i'm the kind of person that sort of perhaps feels that maybe a bit more keenly and the one thing i think about the, the level of difficulty that you face in headship is that there's just no way you could ever look at yourself in the mirror and say that I'm doing this job to the best of my abilities and I've got it sussed. It's just too hard to be able to do that. And I think that's why I've, I'm really enjoying the level I'm at because I could do this for years and years and years and years and still never think, yeah, I've got this one sorted. I just need to rock up and do it um, because it, it's so complex and so challenging. And I think the thing that you and I definitely have in common is that we love being classroom teachers, love working with children, but actually working with adults and teaching teachers has for us been just as satisfying and I do feel that when you're ahead, you probably spend more time, much more time developing your staff, perhaps, than you would in any other role. And that's why I love it and quite happy to do it for, well, indefinitely. Oh, well, you are at an amazing school. And don't your little girls go there as well? Um, <laughs> that's that's the other thing as well, is that I see, well, um, my I've got two girls and... Uh, the elder one is only five years old. The other one's going to join the school, the school nursery next year. She's teeny tiny, but you know when I, uh, you can see from the inside what a good school it is and how professional everybody is, how committed they are, and the opportunities that they provide for the kids. That's just what I want for my children, and, and that's one of the, the best benefits I think of of being a teacher in a really great school. Is if your own children can go there and they get a great experience of it along with, with other pupils as well. You know, it's wonderful from a, from a life perspective, what do you want to achieve in your teaching life? Well, giving your own children the best education you, know, you can is a great thing. And it's, it's one of the privileges we have in our job. Oh, amazing. And Faya has just tweeted me that we have made her day <laughs> by saying <laughs> how incredible she is. So I didn't realize Faya was listening, but she really is uh, incredible. Um, and another, sorry, I'm just, Going back to our book, but another thing that I really loved, and this is quite nice, we're having this like reflection chat now, it's out there in the world and so on. Um, I loved the chapter that we wrote about the application process and interview skills. And as I said, I've just been going through that process with the recruitment of my replacement and obviously you as a head teacher, you interview lots of people and to get to the point where you are, you've been through a really rigorous process so I really hope that chapter is really helpful for people because we had tips about the CV and how 
well, we said, you know, the CV tends to be something we just look at when we go to apply to jobs, whereas you gave that advice, say, nope, update it regularly. Um, the letter, we talked about a sideways move or stepping down or an internal application, external application. I just think, but I think that in itself could be a book about recruitment and the process and just trying to, to do the best that you absolutely can. I've definitely made lots of mistakes uh, along the way in terms of recruitment you know the copy and paste letters and change the name of the school um i spelt the name of the school wrong once like hopefully people can look you know because i was just like early in my career just bashing out all of these letters and not really thinking carefully or then another mistake i made was um, which I know lots of other people have made, is applying for an internal role going, ah, oh, just chuck my name in the hat and then being unsuccessful. And then you've got to still work in that school where you've applied and it hasn't gone well. So that's why it was really good to be able to give that advice. Like, look, if you're applying internally or externally, but especially internally, think about both ways, how it could go. You know, the person that you work with could then be your line manager, for example. And the things that come with that so what did you enjoy that chapter i did and you're right it could be a whole book in its own right and i'm sure people will go through it and disagree with some of the observations we made or bits of advice that we've given but and i think you were onto this straight away just there's such a different dynamic to being an internal versus an external applicant and both have strengths both have weaknesses but i think the the preparation that you can make for a career change does need to begin a bit earlier and we both talked quite a lot about you know how, how do you especially if it's like a middle leadership role what have you done to prepare yourself as a middle leader or have you just spotted something like the look of and then you start thinking about oh could I be a middle leader you've got you know these are significant steps forward in your career so you've got to be ready for them you've got to be ready professionally and personally and you know we, we talked about this a lot there's a huge knock-on effect if you don't get a post because you can invest so much time and personal energy in it. And you're right, if it's an internal application, that can be really tough. You know, how do you feel about the school? How do you feel about the school leader? I, I hate disappointing internal applicants, but you have to do it because when you've got multiple people applying for the same role, you can't keep them all happy. So, um, And I think one of the, the key messages there is that people do perfectly understandably take it personally when they don't get a post because they think, yeah, I could have done that. I'm qualified. Why didn't I get it? But the the difficult thing is understanding you've you've it's not just about being able to do the job it's about being the best candidate in the field and you've got to beat everyone else who's out there and i remember you know, one post that i i got and the other person i found out in in when they were doing their feedback session they just said you know do you know what i don't mind at all i got out cv'd on that one I'm totally realistic about it but not many people have that reaction to not getting a post that they really care about so when you apply for anything, you're about to put yourself through quite a, an emotionally challenging process and you've got to be ready for the outcome, whether it's good or bad. And then there's all those other things to factor in as well about, you know, what's the knock-on effect for friends and family? Do I have to also move house or move country? And, you know, they're, they're massive decisions. And I just felt that maybe there are books out there that give decent career advice, but if there have, I, I haven't really seen them to have something that was explicitly about, you know, sit down and think about this carefully. Here are the challenge questions for you personally. Do you want to make a move? Are you ready for the consequences? That was 
what we were really talking about in this because we've both been through it ourselves and you know I, I've, I've implied for eternal things before and, and been overlooked and you know, I, I think in one case I moved on from a school because it, it, it wasn't, I felt bitter about not getting the post. I, I, the person who got it was was perfectly qualified for it, really, really good and ended up being my line manager and I, I love working with them. But it did also make me think, actually, I'm not sure where my next move within this school would be and I'll probably have to move to another school if I want to take on a new challenge. And, you know, it, I had no idea how that thought was going to pop into my head, but three months later there it was. So just got to think quite carefully about how will you feel about going through any process because it's uh, it's such a big step. It requires courage, but it also requires you to be quite self-reflective as well. Yeah, it, I haven't read. Um, I mean, there's tips online about things to do and not do in an interview and so on. And and it's changed again, you know, with the Zoom interviews and things like that and yeah. um, and video applications. And, and there's, there's just so many different aspects to it but I yeah I did I did find that chapter really important and we had a separate chapter on reflection but that was just something that we just we kept coming back to and I what I uh, well other people have picked up on is that and what I liked about our book is that we have put in our own experiences and then we've we've obviously been evidence informed because I wrote about how I've never had a pastoral leadership role because I've always been told my strength is teaching and learning in a way like almost like a punishment, if that makes sense. Like you're not going to be there, <laughs> which is, I know that sounds crazy. Like I, I love being a form tutor and I love the pastoral side, but they say, but you're, you're, but you're good at the teaching and learning stuff. And then for me, that's just crazy. Why are we pigeonholing? And just, of course you'll have areas of expertise and areas of interest, but you know, you're a head teacher. You have to deal with teaching and learning and pastoral things don't you so absolutely and i think that's um one of the best bits of advice i was ever given when i was first looking at applying for deputy ed posts i saw one in, in a school that i really liked and i went to somebody i really trusted and said what do you think about this i'm, I'm considering applying for it and the advice i got was well don't because that's almost identical to what you're doing now and you know quite surprised by that advice i thought well that would be a reason to go for it would it not i've got a good chance of getting it and so, well, well, no, because if you want to genuinely progress, you need to do something that you haven't done before and get new experience. So when I did um, become a deputy or an, an assistant rector, there were some things on there that I just had no real background in. Like, um, you know, it's one thing to be to know a bit about health and safety so you can write a departmental risk assessment or go on a trip. But to actually be responsible for whole school health and safety, suddenly I was in charge of that. I had an HR remit, I had a GDPR remit. And all of this was really just massively steep learning curves that you know, had I not done that, I wouldn't have been ready for headship. If I'd stayed on very much a more academic route, if, if, if and again, it's a big difference between England and Scotland there, where I think deputy heads cover more bases generally in Scottish schools because they're not really deputy head academic or deputy head pastoral. You, you will find that, but you'll more likely find a, a bit of a mix of everything. So... In, in my remit, I had something academic, something pastoral, and then a whole range of operational things that meant I was actually on, on a, a trajectory towards headship without even really knowing it when I took on the job. So also think about the skills that you need to develop when you're making that kind of a move. It's very tempting to stick in the, in the same 
slipstream because that's what you're good at and that's what you know. But actually for real progression and development, you've got to take on the things that you're not comfortable with and maybe never even cross your mind to do in the first place. Um, and, and coming back to an, an earlier one as well, I, I applied for an internal post. I didn't get it, but I was given in the feedback, the, the, the well, very nice feedback that they could see me doing the job, just not yet. But had I thought of getting involved in initial teacher training? And at the time, not at all. It's the first time I got into it. And as soon as I started doing it, I thought, why did I never think of this before? This is brilliant. Absolutely loved it. So take on the things that you don't know, I think, if you want to go on a leadership progression, because you know, that's, that's really how you end up in a position as a head where you feel you've got a bit of background everywhere. If you end up being a head and you've never really had a pastoral job, I just can't see how that would work very well. And I don't mean that to be critical of heads who find themselves in that position, but you really don't want to have no grounding in something that's so critical to the health of your school. So you've got to do a little bit of everything. Yeah. And we had a model in our book about how, yes, you sort of, you know, pick your path, academic, pastoral, and then you go straight down there. But every teacher has a pastoral responsibility and every pastoral leader has a teaching and learning responsibility. So they really do go hand in hand. And even when I talk about retrieval practice and study and revision, yes, I'm talking about it from an academic perspective, but I'll also be talking about well-being and reducing student anxiety and this overlap with pastoral provision. So I, I really hope that our book has made that case that it's not either or that you know you you make you and actually some people yeah. might be ahead of year and think this isn't for me because this is very responsive and they might prefer to be ahead of department because that's different again you've got your deadlines and you can work towards that so it might be good to try both as a middle leader i, I totally agree and you know that that's it if you want to be sort of strong all around you need to see a little bit of everything and it's what i i really loved about your first book love to teach was that uh, knowing you as I did when you sent me across the manuscript, I was thinking, you know, this is Kate, she's head of history and, you know, she's really strong in teaching and learning. And then when I read the book, I just got such a strong your pastoral experience uh, without having had an explicit leadership role, but how passionate you were about that. And I just thought that's really wonderful. It's the book to life, actually. And, you know, that, that's, that's what you're looking for in people is that I, I, my brain operates a little bit along the lines of, might sound simplistic, but this is what our, our own college improvement plan is, is structured around, is that what we do in schools is fundamentally about teaching and learning, looking after the well-being of our pupils, giving them opportunities in the core in the co-curriculum, and then being as good as we possibly can be in all those areas by really effective professional learning. So those for me are, are kind of like the four pillars of a great school. So our, our college improvement plan is based around that. And you know, if, if you get everyone seeing that global picture, then I think you're well on the way to developing great teachers and great schools. Yeah, well, we, um, we're coming towards the end of our chat. So I'm just going to say about how we wrapped up the book, which um, you wrote this chapter and I loved it. Um, again, these are things that I just haven't come across in a book before. And this was about the the long-term career strategy. I mean, I've just asked you, haven't I? I said, well, what's your sort of long-term plan? And you said, well, I'm very happy here at this school. I've got young children. Um, and this does link in as well with the professional learning because even if you, we were saying, you have no aspirations for leadership, you can still progress and learn and develop in, in so many ways. And 
it isn't a case of, uh, you know, sometimes we hear these, I'm just a classroom teacher. And that's something else, isn't it, that we wanted to really change the narrative of. So, so I think this was your idea, writing about ending your teaching career and your long-term career strategy. And I remember you, sorry, I'm laughing, but you said, we've got to stick pensions in. And I was like, Robin, we're not writing about pensions. (laughs) 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 And we did because whilst it's not, you know, sexy, I was like, okay, it is important. So you got to stick pensions in. (laughs) But why did (laughs) you? You let me have that. It was right at the end of the book. I don't care. If he wants to write about pensions, let him have a page. (laughs) You weren't quite adamant, and I thought, fair enough, you are right. Like you, yeah, you were right. But why? Why did you think? I mean, it wraps up the book really nicely. Um, but that's probably something that I wouldn't have thought about. So why do you think that this is um so important for people to think about? Yeah, the long term strategy. Yeah, I mean, on the specific point about pensions, what I I really do think that we need to talk a bit more about is that for our well-being as teachers, we never talk about the financial aspect, but you know, financial well-being is significant because if we're absolutely working ourselves into the ground and actually not making ends meet for one reason or another, you've got to think, have I got my career plan right here? And that actually planning over the long term to make sure that you can retire on a high so you're really happy with you know, the position you've reached in your career, what you've achieved, and that you can retire comfortably and, and you know, actually live the retirement you want to live as well. You know, all of that does take a bit of planning. And I think teachers, some teachers are good at that, but many are not. I certainly didn't think enough about it early on, but I, I probably thought about it you know, more than others did. My mum my and dad said to me that, right, you've, first time you've signed a contract, you've got a proper job, you should try and get on the property ladder. And I, I bought, uh, you know, the, probably the cheapest flat Edinburgh had to offer. But, you know, that was it. I, I, I could say I own my own flat when I was about 23. And, and looking back at it, it was a great move. And I only did it because my parents told me. But, you know, it, it's just things like that. How do you make sure that as you're earning and going through your career, you are making sure that you can retire when you want to and you can retire comfortably? Because not necessarily all teachers achieve that. And I think it's especially hard if people drop out of the profession after five or 10 years. You know, that's also really significant. So, I suppose it's about thinking, when do you want to finish and how do you want to finish and what do you want to say that you've achieved? Um, And it goes a little bit back to the story we tell at the start of the book about my father's cousin, Archie Bevan, and the amazing things he achieved in his career. But what was most important to Archie, so much so he had it carved into his tombstone, was that he was a teacher. And for him, that was his, his professional identity. And it mattered so much to him. And okay, well, not everyone's an Archie Bevan. What, what do you want to say when you finish? Is it the role you had? Is it the school you worked at? Is it the things that you did? But try and think ahead a bit if you can, because our well-being is connected to this. If you've got a career that's challenging you in the right way and you really enjoy it and that your financial well-being is good, then chances are your overall well-being will be pretty strong too. We, we always think well-being seems to be connected only to workload. It's not as connected to so many different things, but actually you know, considering... Where do you want to live? Do you want to go abroad at some point? Do you want to stay where you are? Is it more important to be in your family and, and you know support networks like friends? All of these kind of things should go into some kind of wider career plan. I'm not saying you have to sit down and itemize a development plan, but ask yourself that question. It's why we call the book The Teaching Life. What do you want to get out of your life in teaching? Yeah, and 
the, we have challenge questions um, for each chapter. And I think we just, I think we'll really make people think and reflect. And writing this book has, has raised a lot of questions for me as well. And like I said, I resonated a lot with the case studies and, and we never had well-being as a bolt-on chapter because it's sort of throughout, isn't it? We talk about the professional learning and the fulfillment and enjoyment that you can get from it and the career progression, if that is what you want. Um, so, yeah, lots of things. That's absolutely brilliant, Robin. I mean, obviously, I loved writing the book with you. But this is, has been great to dissect it even more with you about the teaching life. <laughs> It's been so nice to do this because, I mean, we, we did work furiously on it over the summer and then you chip away at it little and often once you've submitted a manuscript, you know, it, it comes back and you do it little edits here and there. But, you know, the bulk of the work was done in the summer. So now it feels like we, we can actually look back and reflect on it a, a little bit. And I have to say, you know, co-authoring with someone is such a great experience. Um, and, you know, the, the books I've done, I've basically three sort of core books that I've done have all been co-authored. And... It's just because I like working collaboratively. Uh, whenever I wrote things that were you know, university level work, I did find it a bit of a lonely experience. It's not to say that I didn't enjoy it, but it's just the to and fro and the brainstorming and you know, being challenged to see things in a different way that comes from collaborating with someone. And even, even though you know we see so much of the education world the same way, we don't see it exactly the same. So we did have some really fascinating conversation. We think about it and I think, no, actually, Kate's right about that, or oh, I'm going to stick to my guns on that one. And it's just, it, it's such a, a healthy level of challenge and a fun thing to do. You know, people kind of think, well, why are you writing books? Why on earth would you waste your summer doing that? No, it's because it's genuinely really enjoyable. It's such a good experience. It's a great thing to achieve. So if anyone out there has got an itch to do some writing, just, just start, just write something, anything, good positive feedback well, you'll develop as a writer. It's, it's a great thing to do. We actually did write about that, didn't we? We actually, um, there's a section in the book about career progression, not leadership, where we give tips how to become an author, how to write for a magazine, how to become a blogger. There's all these different outlets now. And I just hope that this book um, is helpful for teachers, but also quite reassuring in the sense of if if this isn't something that they feel that they want to do that there are alternatives it's a really yeah, exciting diverse yeah, profession and, isn't it and then at the risk of making people a bit embarrassed i think when it comes to being a blogger affecting social media and influencing things in a positive way on an international level you've been a pioneer of that um, you know, we both brought our own different experiences and strengths to the book. But I, when you were writing that material and I was reading it, I just thought this is such a privilege for me to be able to see. Because, you know, there, there are not many people who have got the, the level of network and reach that you have that you've built up through just an absolute commitment to talking publicly about your passion for teaching and learning. And there are so many people out there who are capable of doing the same. And I hope in, in reading those bits of the book, they'll just think, yeah, OK, I can do that. It's not actually that hard. It's not that scary. Let's just give it a go. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being my guest. I mean, obviously, we need to catch up soon. I'll come to Scotland to see you, and um, we'll have to catch up in Wales as well. But for people listening, Robin is on Twitter at Robin underscore Mac P. Okay, and do check out all of your details are on there, your blog link and all the work that you do. Um, uh, well, you do absolutely loads. Um, and if you haven't read 
Robin's first book with Carl Hendrick. I highly recommend it. But I also recommend our book as well. Am I allowed to do that? <laughs> I think we're okay. We can get away with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much, Robin, for being such an amazing guest, an amazing co-author and friend as well. <laughs> thanks so much, Kate. Um, thanks so much for having me on. It's been a total pleasure. Oh, bye, Robin. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.